you. Again, this is Isaiah chapter 30, which is on page 591. I'm going to read verses 8 through 17. And now go, write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among, its, that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away, and will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. This is the word of God. Well, do keep your Bibles open there at Isaiah chapter 30. You know, the God of the Bible is full of surprises. That is to say, the ways of God in Scripture and in history, as well as our own experience, often go against the grain of our usual ways of thinking and acting. We can never really second-guess God. Who would have thought that the God who made the planets and the great universe in which we find ourselves would choose to make himself visible and approachable as a vulnerable human baby. Who would have thought that the one whose very word, just his word, commanded light to exist and threw stars into place would commit that word to prophets and apostles and to his son, that word to be discounted and disobeyed by his own creatures. Who would have thought that God would have allowed himself to be brutalized, beaten, and blooded by his own creatures who depend on him for their very breath? Who would have thought that this God should even have dealt with creatures in the first place and that he should deal with them not on the basis of their performance but on the basis of his own sheer grace? Who would have thought that God would deal with us on the basis of a word, a promise, expecting us to believe him, rather than giving us a a fire and light show that enables us to see him physically or to touch him tangibly? Who would have thought? God's ways are not our ways. In fact, Isaiah will use those very words himself explicitly later on in this great book of his. And yet, however surprising God is, 
It is no less surprising that the people who know him best, that is his covenant people, who have a history with God, often seem to act as if they don't know God at all. In Isaiah chapter 28, in an earlier message that Isaiah himself had preached, he had told the people that there was only one sure foundation in this life, in this uncertain life. That is, in the covenant God, the covenant Lord, and his promises. In Zion, the city of God, not just the physical Jerusalem, but the heavenly city of God. In the Davidic king, that is a king from David's line who has divine titles and honors and who is yet to come, in whom all the promises of God converge. Isaiah has said, that is the one sure foundation. Everywhere else there is no security. Everywhere else there is only certain death. The world's securities and wisdom will come to nothing. And yet, what do we find? We come to chapter 30, and Judah is in, the, is in the spotlight. Judah is the church of its day. There's only, there's only one parallel to what Judah is back then in our day, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. They are a covenant people. They know God. They have the written oracles of God, the Word of God written in their hands. And they are responsible to live for God in the world just as we are. And here had been their modus operandi. Sometime before, you can read about it in chapter 7 and 8 of Isaiah, when Ahaz was the king, they found themselves threatened by northern Israel and Syria in an alliance. In order to resist, in order to defend themselves, Ahaz and his cabinet had applied to an up-and-coming new power, new kid on the block, who was just emerging at that point, Assyria, Assyria, as distinct from Syria. They had called on Assyria to come to help them. Isaiah the prophet had confronted Ahaz the king, confronted his unbelief, confronted the fact that he was depending on this foreign power instead of depending on God. Now many years have passed. Now Assyria has grown in strength and little Judah now feels threatened by its one-time ally. It's looking around itself. It's looking around to know what to do. It, feel, it feels threatened by Assyria and so it looks south down to Egypt, the nearest great power that could perhaps be a rival to Assyria. In other words, having failed in unbelief once, they're now failing in unbelief again. As E.J. Young puts it, sin is cumulative. One sin leads to another. So here's their policy. Here is the policy of the church of Isaiah's day. Let me spell it out for you. The policy of the church is this. When you're in a crisis... When you're feeling vulnerable or weak or you feel you're under attack, look around and try and find some other human source of security, 
of help. Because just talking about trusting in God isn't enough. So when we come to chapter 30, you go to the beginning of the chapter, you find that what is already going on behind the scenes in covert meetings is a series of top-secret, high-level maneuvers by Jerusalem's leaders, that is, by the leaders of the church, to negotiate an alliance with Egypt. Now, this is something we can understand. If, if you understand anything about the realpolitik of the world system in which we live, it is wise for a little power to have an alliance with a big power. It's wise for the United Kingdom, who today is a little power in the world, along with other powers like Germany and France and, uh, and Spain and so on, to have an alliance with a really big power like the United States to ward off the prospect of aggression by some other rogue power arising. That's in the world of realpolitik. But when we read the story of Judah in this situation here in Isaiah 30, I remind you that Judah is not just any other nation. These are not similar circumstances. These are God's confessing people. They are a theocracy. They are under the authority of God the King. God has very clear statements. God has said to these people, when you're in a crisis, when there's no one else to help, I will help. Sounds like a good line for a song. When there's no one else to help, I will help. That was God's promise to the people of God. Now you see, what this crisis exposed was the functional faith of the people and of their leaders. Now what do I mean by functional faith? Let me put it like this, that functional faith, our functional faith is meant to correspond to our confessed faith. Uh, our confessed faith, which we've done this morning as we've gathered together for worship here, we confess our faith in God as the creator of all things, the sustainer, the governor, the ruler. We said, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's our confessed faith. Our functional faith kicks in whenever that confession is under attack in one way or another. It happens to us as individuals. If I'm suffering from some illness or, or there's been a bad news in the family or there's a financial decline and I'm losing money right, left and center or I have to sell my home or, or children are or have died or have left home and, and my life is in disarray when there is a crisis in my personal life, what do I do then? Where does my faith go then? That exposes where my functional faith lies. And in the church, whether you think of a local church or the church more widely, when there's a crisis in the church or in the world, it's then that what we really believe what our functional faith is that is exposed. When our back is against the corner, what do we do? Do we take things into our own hands? Do we try to resolve the problem by our own wit and wisdom, by covert maneuvers? Isaiah writes this sermon in chapter 30. 
into that kind of thick human mess as he sees the church of his day madly rushing to do everything they can to save themselves. And this is the kind of thing that's repeated over and over again. Not only in our personal lives, but in the church itself. When the church adapts its message to save itself from irrelevance in the world. When the church leaders resort to pragmatic means to achieve spiritual ends. Or when the church believes that only by imitating the world can it win the world. We all in those contexts exemplify where our functional faith is placed. Is it in the sovereignty of God? Is it in the priority of God in my life? Isaiah addresses the issue. And I want you to notice he addresses the issue in this chapter quite simply. And he says to these people, in effect, three things. First, Egypt. What you are going to put your faith in, Egypt, is no help. He says to them, Assyria, what you're most afraid of is no threat. And thirdly, God is no disappointment. Let's break those down together, first of all. First of all, Egypt is no help. That takes us from verse 1 really to verse 17. Egypt is no help. Actually, further down to verse uh, yeah, 17. At the heart of God's complaint, let's go back to verse 1, is their misplaced trust. One of Isaiah's big messages throughout this book has been this, that our relationship with God, the God of the Bible, is conditioned on faith and faith alone. And when he saw these people turning and making these movements to go down, verse 2, to go down to Egypt... He challenges them. Notice how the prophet assesses their actions. Verse 1, they are stubborn children. Deuteronomy 21, Moses had talked about rebellious sons. Those who will not listen to their father. Those who will not listen to God but go in their own way. It's the very same language that's used here. Stubborn or rebellious children. The word that's used there for stubborn or rebellious is the word to turn aside. They'd turned aside from the Lord. They turned aside from the Lord's word. They turned aside and put their confidence in their own wit and wisdom, in their own devices and desires. They thought they knew better than God. They thought they couldn't really wait for God or rely on God. They'd taken things into their own hands because of the crisis. I think this morning of a major group of conservative churches in a country that I know well but will not identify who have decided that they want to make their mark on the greatest city of that country. They want to have a church right at the very heart of that city. They understand that the whole culture is moving away against Christianity and so they've They've concluded that the normal elements of a Christian church or worship uh, cannot be focused, as it were, on the people of God worshiping God. Therefore, there will be no liturgy. Uh, They will not use a translation like we're using. They will use a, a paraphrase because that is more accessible to people. 
Their talks will not be addressed to Christians, teaching them the Bible, but rather to non-Christians. And they will be seeking to explain the very simple gospel in simple terms to those who come. And as they've been drawing up their plans, number one on their budget list is over $800,000 for the instruments for the band and for the sound system and for the multimedia displays that will be, that will be shown in those services. What are they doing? They're going down to Egypt. Instead of starting off with God, they're making their own plans and think that if they follow those plans while ignoring God's plans, they will be successful where the rest of us have failed. Listen carefully to what God says to these people. He specifies their sin. They make a move without consulting the Lord. Look what he says. Verse 1. Who carry out a plan, but not mine. Oh, you've got plans. You have a strategy. You put it all together. You're now assembling the money you need in order to implement it. But your plan is not my plan. You never listened to me. You didn't come to me. In fact, you're making an alliance, but not of my spirit. Nor did you ask my direction. Do you see how he puts that? You're going down to Egypt without asking for my direction. You never asked me, God says. You never came to me first. You never called on my name. You didn't pray. And if you prayed, you didn't read what I had to say. You didn't come to the Bible and say to me, if I can apply it to that scenario I just painted there, you never asked me in the Bible, how do I expect Christian worship to look? What elements should be there? What should I do in this scenario? How should I respond to a decreasing Christian influence in the world? How should I act? You never asked me those questions, God says. And in so doing, in so doing, he says, verse 1, you have added sin to sin. Not only don't you, do you not believe that I'm enough for you, that you've got to find some other source of help, but you, you've, not, you've ignored my word, you've not asked for my opinion, you've added sin to sin to sin to sin. Very often what we do in our Christian lives as well as in our churches is we make our plans and we come up with our schemes and we ask God to bless our plans and our schemes. He leaves us to make up our minds through, pray, through prayer and about the details within the orbit of his revealed will. That's normally what he does. So there they are. They're making a move without God. And secondly, they're despising their covenant by, with God by making a covenant with Egypt. It's as if the church says to the world, okay, if we dumb down, if we dumb down our sermons, if we make our worship either ascetically or contemporaneously acceptable and relevant to you, will you give us a hearing? Will you, will you let us in? Will you give us credibility? Will you hear our voice? It's a little arrangement. We'll do this. You do that for us. It's a covenant with the world. 
It's an alliance with Egypt. And that God challenges them. You're going down to Egypt. You're making an alliance, but not of my spirit, that you may add sin to sin. And in the course of doing that, what are you doing? You're ignoring the word of God. Because Israel had a history with Egypt. For 400 plus years, they'd been enslaved there. God had demonstrated his power over Egypt by smashing her armies and delivering his people from their grasp and forever being known among the people of God as the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And now you're talking about going down to Egypt. And what are you going down for? Look at verse 2. You're going down to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. You take those two words, do a word search in the book of Psalms, and you'll find over and over again in those songs of faith, God says that He is our refuge and strength. He is our shelter in the time of storm. In other words, they're looking to Egypt to do what they should have looked to God to do. They're looking for Egypt to functionally act as their refuge in the midst of the threats of the world and their shelter from the storms of circumstances. And fundamental to what they're doing is that they are not putting their confidence in God. And how humiliating it's going to be when they put their trust in Pharaoh, verse 3, and they are shamed because Pharaoh doesn't turn up. Actually, they should have known that. If they'd read their newspapers, they'd know that Egypt had gone into an alliance with Ashdod about 10 years before. And when Ashdod were under attack, did Egypt turn up? No, they didn't. They should have learned from that, but they didn't. They'd be shamed. They'd be humiliated. Look at that. The shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Humiliation. They're going to lean against Egypt and find that in leaning, they're leaning up against the spear that will spear them through. They're going down through, uh, through the desert. Look at verse 6. Down through the Negev desert. Down towards Egypt. They're taking all, all these donkeys, these treasures. They're going down to buy help, to buy a rescue, to buy a place of security. They're going to invest all this money $800,000 for those people. They're going to invest all this money in the world to try and save the church. That's effectively what's going on, isn't it? And in the end, they're going to be disgraced. Look what it says about Egypt. They are a do-nothing power. Verse 7, its help is worthless and empty. She's got a nickname. She's called Rahab who sits still. It's the old legend of a, a popular sea monster. Old Rahab who sits still, who does nothing. The do-nothing party. They are trusting in one who will not turn up. And if you look at verses 8 to 17, Isaiah spells it out. He puts it in writing, verse 8. The prophets did this. It's one of, the, one of the things you find about the prophets. They would put in writing their predictions so that people could see down the road that what the prophet had said had come true 
in its entirety. That was very important for the authenticity of a prophet. So he's writing down the word of God. There it is. It will be, uh, it will be uh, underwritten. There will be witnesses. It will be notarized. It will be kept in a public place. There will be recorded that everyone will know what God has said about the situation. What has God said? They are, verse 9, a rebellious people. They will not, because they are unwilling, they will not hear the instruction of the Lord. They do not want to hear. Notice what it says in verse 10, to the seers, don't see. We don't want, we don't want to hear you of getting any visions. To the prophets, don't preach to us. Or if you do preach to us, preach to us, verse 10, things that are smooth, smooth things, illusions. I remember listening some years ago to a well-known speaker from Houston, Texas, who has a megachurch there, who will remain unidentified. And he was being interviewed by a non-Christian host on a radio station, and uh, the non-Christian talk, talk show host was asking him the question, why it was that he never mentioned sin or judgment in his sermons. Here was his reply. The people of Isaiah's day would be thrilled to hear this. Well, you know, quote, people are so overwhelmed in their lives. They're hearing negative things all the time. They don't need to hear that from me. They need to be loved and made to feel good about themselves. So he went on. People in Isaiah's day that would say, that's exactly what we're saying to you, Isaiah. Speak to us smooth things. We don't want any more. Look at verse 11. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. You know, that was Isaiah's favorite description of God. He uses it again and again and again and again. Apparently, he'd used it once too often. And they're saying to themselves, we don't want to hear Isaiah preaching anymore. He goes on and on and on and on and on about the Holy One of Israel. That makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to hear any more about the Holy One of Israel. Because that smooth preaching doesn't take seriously the Holy One of Israel. It doesn't take seriously either our sinfulness or God's holiness. Well, the Holy One of Israel may not want to be heard by these people, but he has something to say. Verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. You see the juxtaposition. We want to hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah says, therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. Because you despise this word. Because you won't listen to the word of God. Because pragmatically you think you can resolve the issues yourself in your own wit and wisdom. Because you ignore my word. Your reliance on Egypt will be like a wall, an impregnable wall of defense against the enemy. But in fact, it will be bulging out, about to collapse. It will be like a wall that's not been built properly. I have a friend of mine who was working on a building site and they were working against this wall that had not been built properly and suddenly it collapsed on one of his friends who was helping him the Saturday morning to do this job killed him terrible story this is a bulging wall about to collapse and when it collapses suddenly 
You put your confidence in the world, the world will destroy you in the end. What were they turning their backs on? Look at verse 15. They were turning their backs on God, who is the covenant redeemer and holy one. For thus says the Lord God, the holy one of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. There's God's message to his wayward people. Return. You've turned aside. Turn back. Repent. Come back. I tweeted this this morning. Martin Luther, first thesis of his 95 thesis, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, Repent. He intended that the entire life of a believer be one of repentance. We're always turning away, so therefore we should be always turning back, repenting, coming back to God. And resting on Him. But do you see the charge? Verse 15. But you were unwilling. You were unwilling. No, we will flee upon horses. By the way, the horses were the latest great thing in warfare of the day. Cavalry was, cavalry was the big thing. And uh, their horses were the nearest thing to the air force or the tank divisions that we have today. And they thought they were, by having many horses, they, they had got themselves a great army. We'll get on our horses. And in verse 17, there is a most dreadful reverse, revolution of what the Bible had said in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and 30. God had said to his people, you know, if you trust me, one will chase a hundred and five will put 10,000 to flight, if you trust me. Now what's going to happen? A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. And at the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff. Nothing, nothing left but the pole. In other words, they're going to find in verse 17 an entire reversal of what God had promised to them because they will not trust him. Now you can see. The church has often found itself in this kind of situation in the past. We as individuals find ourselves in this situation where in the midst of a crisis, our functional faith is in ourselves or in other people or in things or in what we can, what we can come up with or our pragmatic schemes or plans. And we think if we do those, those we'll sort it all out. We can't do that. Egypt will not help. But if you fast forward to the end of the chapter, guess what? There's something else the chapter tells us in this last section, 27 to 33. Assyria is no threat. What you're afraid of in the end, Assyria, which was in their day the current manifestation of the world's hostility to the people of God, in the end... Assyria is no final threat to the people of God. Know that. ISIS is not a final threat to the people of God, however grave the threat may be. The cultural imperialism of uh, atheistic science 
is no final threat to the church of God. Believe that. Go and find a map and look and you will find for the last 2,000 years and more, Assyria does not exist on the map. It has never been reborn. It's just disappeared. And God gives this picture of how he will arise, as it were, a great theophany in verse 27. The name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger in thick rising smoke. And he comes to obliterate, to remove, to annihilate, to completely rub out of history Assyria. That had been the great fear of God's people. Not only that, but he had, he had prescribed a future for their leaders, a burning place. Verse 33 has been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, a pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like steam of sulfur, kindles it. It's all coming to an end. Assyria is no threat. The skies you so much dread are filled with mercy and shall break with blessing on your head. But there's a third thing right in the middle here. God is no disappointment. God is no disappointment. Look at verse 18. You would expect that after this serious challenge to their, disp- their unbelief, that God would rub his, wash his hands of these people. But do you know, there is only mercy and grace in God. Look at verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. This is the the very heart of this whole book. Those who exalt themselves in an effort to meet their own needs are doomed to fail. Those who recognize that God alone is exalted in the universe. He is the only one we are to fear. Fear him, ye saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. He is exalted. Only he can make our needs. Only he is the key to life, the universe, and everything. Let God be God. Cast yourself entirely upon God. At the end of the day, salvation comes only from God. He is the only rescuer. When you need a helping hand, only He comes to your aid. He waits. He waits with grace and reserve and glory ahead. He waits to bless. A people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem who shall weep no more. He comes, he waits, he waits to take away every tear from your eye. He waits like the father and the prodigal son waits for his son to return home. He waits patiently until we come unburdening our heart and crying out to him. Verse 19, he will surely be gracious to you. At the sound of your cry, as soon as he hears it, he answers you. He waits. He waits for what? 
He waits for his people who are in crisis, whether they're individuals or a church. He waits for his people to call on his name. He waits for his people who understand what grace is. God waits to be gracious to his people. Contrary to some churches, grace is not a substance that is transferred through the sacraments. Grace is not some gas that moves from God to humans as we go through our religious rites. Grace, rather, is a characteristic of God. It is found in the character of God. It is His nature. It is His free decision to love freely, to show favor fully to those who are unlovable and unworthy. And He wants us to call on His name. Prayer is not some perfunctory thing that we do occasionally. We are meant to be people who take God seriously. You can, you can boil down all the elements of our Christian life down to these two things. The Word of God that tells us what's on God's mind and prayer which informed by the Word of God enables us to engage in a conversation with God in which I listen to Him as He speaks to me in His Word and He listens to me as I pour out my heart cry to Him. Those are the vital elements. There are only two things that characterize the public worship of God according to the Bible. And there are why? There are the Word of God and prayer. Whether it's said or sung, prayer. Those two things. We often say we pray for the work. My dear friends, prayer is the work. Prayer is I bring these things and I cast them on God. The very sound of our cry is what he says. Calls him to action. He comes to save us. And you will hear a word behind you saying this is the way walking it. It's when we pray that the word of God, which might seem abstract and distant to us, when we pray for it. You know, when you pray for a sermon before you hear it, you'll get more out of the sermon. Do you know that? When you pray before you read the Bible, you'll get more out of the Bible because you'll be attuned to hearing the voice of your Maker and your Redeemer as you come to the Scripture. And as you pray, He says, as you cry on Him, you'll hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Not a voice in your head, but a word from the Word of God telling you, this is the way, walk in it. Spiritual renewal as the people of God Engage with God by prayer and through his word. But not only spiritual renewal, universal renewal. Verse 23, 24, 25, a whole renewed creation. You can read it for yourself. Physical creation transformed. And culminating, verse 26, in this beautiful picture of the end of all things, the gospel that pronounces a blessing on all who wait for him. You see, there's God waiting to bless us, and there are those who trust him and are resting on him, who have returned to him, who rest on him, and who wait for God to act. We don't have to twist his arm up his back. We don't have to say to him, you need to do it now, and you need to do it today, and you need to do it in my lifetime. We say we wait 
patiently for the Lord. My soul waits. Waiting is the characteristic of what? Faith. Faith that hopes and waits for God to keep his word. Faith in the down times when the mass movement isn't there. But in the down times, even with small numbers, waits on God to come and act. Faith in action. And in the end, verse 26, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days on the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Then verse 29, there will be a party. You will have songs, a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. In the end, joy. In the end, bliss. In the end, blessedness. In the end, every cry heard. In the end, every prayer answered. In the end, every victory won. In the end, triumph. Meantime, waiting. Waiting for the Lord. In the end, every sin pardoned. As the old hymn writer put it, well may the accuser roar of wrongs that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knows of none because they're covered in the blood of the Savior. One little thought. We almost go over this in the passage where God waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Well, you say justice is not what I need to hear today. I need to hear grace. He waits to be gracious. Justice. Justice takes us to Calvary. Justice takes us to the cross. Justice takes us to the place where Jesus, against the holy justice of God, is counted to be sin for his people. And as our substitute, justice's demands are exhausted in the person of God's Son so that he might be gracious to you and to me. You know, this is a word for Christian people. But it's surely a word for you if you aren't a Christian person. God waits to be gracious. Call on him. You only need to call on the name of the Lord. and He will rescue you. He said it. This is his promise. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would teach us what it means to be functional believers.
in the midst of the crises of life, whether they're our own personal crises, the crisis of a local church, the crisis of the church generally in the world. Help us to be functionally believing you, trusting you. In the dark days and days when nothing else is happening, to wait patiently on the Lord. Would you please incline your ear to us today, we pray. Hear our cry. And in our day, will you remember mercy? Have mercy on us as a congregation and us as individuals. Have mercy, Lord, on this country of which we're a part. Have mercy, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.